0: Now, on the front end, you may think, how's that going to make life more stressful? I'm more stressed just thinking about trying to do what you're talking about, maybe what you feel in the moment. But I'll promise you, if you'll put into practice what we talk about today, it'll do more to overcome stress and anxiety in your life than anything else that I'm aware of. So there's the the problem and the promise on the front end. Let's begin with what the wisest man on earth had to say in Ecclesiastes 7.29. Solomon said this, God made man simple. That is not an insult. That's actually good news. God made man simple. Man's complex problems are of his own devising. Wouldn't you agree with that? God didn't intend for life to be so complicated. We made it that way. So today is about how do we get back to simplicity, to what God wanted for us in life. We'll start with this thought. Simplicity is freedom. Duplicity is bondage. We all know what duplicity looks like, don't we? It's a life... That's split. It's where I say one thing, but then in reality over here I'm living something different. It's I'm one way with one group of people, but I'm another way with this group of people. I'm one way in church. I'm another way in the world. That's duplicity. Duplicity is stressful. Simplicity is freedom. Simplicity brings joy and balance. Duplicity brings anxiety and fear. Now, I know as we've gone through the disciplines, typically what I've done is to define it on the front end and then talk about it and then get down to how we apply it. I'm not just going to give you a simple definition. What we do today, every discipline we've done so far has been sort of like I've come up and started by saying, look at this big poster picture of what it is that we're talking about it. And and then I'll share with you some of the ways that we apply it. Today's going to be a little bit more like painting on a canvas as we go along. You're just going to have to allow some time today for the picture to take shape as we talk about what a lifestyle of simplicity is. Because it's not all summed up in just one sentence. But by the middle of the message, you'll you'll see where how the picture is unfolding. But we can say that simplicity is an inward reality that absolutely will manifest itself in our outward lifestyle. And you got to understand this on the front end, that if you just claim to have the inner sense of simplicity in your life, but if it doesn't change how you're living, you had not got it. You just have the illusion of simplicity. And by the same token, If all you have is the exterior uh, performance of, see, I'm living what the preacher's talking about. I'm living the life of of simplicity. And as you'll see today, it's it's easy to turn this into law. If you have that without the the inward reality of it, you'll just be a a miserable legalist. You've got to have both. So what are we talking about? Well, simplicity is a lifestyle, just to begin to give you some strokes to fill in what this looks like. It's a lifestyle where speech becomes plain, honest, truthful. We we don't need to use flattery and how we talk to, you know exaggerate. We just speak the truth very directly. It's a life where lust for status and position disappear because we're just beginning to realize we just don't need those anymore. It's a life where showy extravagance goes away because we don't need the attention now. And it's a lifestyle where our goods are available to others who need them. And that's where things begin to get really tricky. Now, modern culture doesn't encourage any of that, does it? Modern culture tends to trap us in a maze of of competing drives and desires and motivations where in one minute we're making real logical decisions, in one moment we're making decisions based on Christian ideals and ethics, and in the next minute we're being totally driven by what the Joneses have and what they do and concern for how other people think. And we wind up just very divided and, and with all these different competing ways of thinking. Richard Foster has summed up pretty well what life is like today. He says, because we lack a divine center our insecurity leads us to an insane attachment to things and these cravings border on psychotic would you agree with that i certainly would you you know what that psychosis looks like it leaves us at a place where we're constantly looking for and shopping for and craving things that we don't even really need or when you get down to it when you've got it you don't so much want it anymore have you ever done that You ever just found yourself, you know, online just shopping and looking when you don't really need anything and then you see things that you just got to have it and then when you spend the money to order it and get it, you don't ever use it. You don't ever wear it. That's really kind of psychotic, the level that we take that to. Always buying things we don't need to impress people we don't like. That's crazy. And until you realize how sick our culture is and how living in a sick culture and conforming to its standards makes us sick, until you can get to a place of recognizing just how sick the culture has become, you won't do anything to address the spirit of mammon in your own life. I won't. But we've been like the frog in the kettle where we've just become so accustomed to the temperature around us, we don't realize that there's anything wrong. We don't realize we're getting cooked by this. We're made, we are made to feel ashamed, to wear clothes, or to drive cars until they wear out. Don't you know that's the truth? Do you see how much things have changed now? I can remember when I was a kid that it was just sort of the norm, at least in the world that I grew up in, that when the family bought a car, and boy, that, that tells you how different things used to be, you know, when there was the family car, instead of everybody who's 16 having a car. It's a very different world that we live in just in that regard, but... A family got a car, and you you kind of figured how long you could drive that car based on how long it would take to wear it out, right? And you drove things until they wore it. You bought clothes and you wore them until you had holes in the knees or until they were you know kind of hitting you as waiters or something. But you know you you used clothes until they were used up. And now culture has just totally retrained us. It's like, oh, there's something wrong in your life if you're driving a car that's you know. Got a lot of miles on it. I mean, you realize how much we do tend to look at people like that? Somebody's driving a car that's 12 or 15 years old, and we tend to just sort of silently shake our heads and go, bless their hearts. something must really be going badly for them. I mean, that thing must have 150 or 200,000 miles on it instead of going, good for them. They're getting all the good they can out of that. (laughs) Weren't they smart? They bought a Honda. They bought a Toyota. You know, something that that they could get a lot of miles out of, and they're, they're using it up. And yet we live in a culture that it's like, if you don't have on new clothes, if you're not driving a new car, there must be something wrong with you. No, there's something wrong with our culture. And this psychosis, it permeates almost every part of the culture. I'll give you another for instance. Movies and and books, stories today are pretty much consistently about you know the, the conclusion of the matter and the majority of the time is about the guy or the gal who ultimately they went for it they made the sacrifice they took the risk and at the end da da they're rich and successful right and we're all happy for them. That's a good conclusion to the story. They, they wound up, you know, with the life they always wanted. And we're so glad it ended that way because now they've got everything that they wanted. And we never have a story where the conclusion of the matter is that the protagonist, instead of pursuing a life of wealth and comfort, willingly sacrifices what they could have had for the good of others and accepts a life of having less in order to serve when's the last time you went to that movie nobody will buy that movie ticket that's not the hero that we want a life of sacrifice a life of commitment to serve others That tells you how much the culture has embraced this way of thinking so we've got to be intentional about rejecting the modern notion that we have of evaluating a person's worth based on things like their earning potential or their net worth or their credit score if we're going to embrace embrace the discipline of simplicity, we're going to have to be willing to put a lot of common ways of thinking aside and grab hold of what has been a dream that has been realized at different points in history, but that has been lost in the West and modern history. It can be reclaimed. There are people who are doing this, and if you want to get free from a life that's filled with stress and anxiety, this is the pathway to it. So, all right, let's 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 get down to just looking at some fundamental biblical truths about a lifestyle of simplicity, and this is the part where it's going to get a little bit painful, so I hope you brought your, your stiff-toed boots this morning. The first truth is this, the Bible is not ambiguous about economic issues. We would love for it to be, and we tend to want to treat it like it is, but it is not ambiguous. What I mean when I say that is, there are certain issues that the Bible is intentionally unclear on. Drinking alcohol is one of those. Now, you may have a strong opinion about that, and that's fine, but the Bible doesn't give us a particular path that this is what you're supposed to do when it comes to, you know, a bunch of issues and alcohol being one of them. And see, I grew up Baptist, and we wanted so badly it had just one more chapter in there that says all people who drink alcohol are going to hell or something like that. You know, we just we wanted it to be there. It, it wasn't there. It's not there. And so, <laughs> so, you know, we have to just be careful to affirm what the scriptures say. It says don't get drunk. So don't be a drunk. There's latitude for you to discover what fits for you. For some people, it is a terrible idea to drink at all. And for others, they can do it in moderation and enjoy it. and It's not a problem. And so we have to leave it as a matter of personal conviction where you sort out between you and God. and He's so capable of leading you in what to do. What we would love is for the Bible to be equally open on the matter of money. And you just have your own convictions and your own lifestyle, and the Bible doesn't have to address any of that. The problem is, the Bible overwhelmingly addresses the issue of economics. In fact, there was no social issue that Jesus addressed as frequently or as thoroughly in all of the Gospels as he did the matter of money and possessions. So I'm going to just for a couple of minutes give you just a smattering of what the Scriptures have to say about these issues First of all, the Ten Commandments. This is the basement level. This is the foundation for what it means, first of all, to be human. And then secondly, to be even pre-Christian. Are you with me? So this isn't like the top level. This is just, if you even want to begin to live above the animals and live in any way reflecting the image of God, we have the Ten Commandments. And the Tenth Commandment, do you remember what it is? It is the commandment that you must not covet. This addresses our fundamental lust to possess more. And God's saying, this is an advanced Christianity. This is just a fundamental teaching. You, you have an inner lust to have more, more, more. And that's wrong. More from the Old Testament, Psalm 62.10 says this, If riches increase, set not your heart on them you got a lot of stuff. You're living in a time of abundance. He says, don't let yourself fall in love with what you've got. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He who trusts in riches will wither. Everybody say, will wither. You ever watched a person do that? It's like the more you have and the more you set your heart on those things, the smaller a person you become. That's a picture that we need to let sink in, isn't it? The greater my empire becomes, the smaller man I become. Because the person who sets his heart on riches withers. Our souls become diminished as a result of that. And Jesus, wow, Jesus declared war on materialism. Didn't he? Oh, we're not convinced. I think you will be in the next three minutes. Let me give you not everything he said, just a sampling of some of what Jesus said about wealth and possessions. Luke sixteen thirteen, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, we need to say that last line again, don't we? Let's say it together. You cannot serve both God and money. If you read the older translations, it doesn't say money, does it? It says you cannot serve both God and mammon. You ever noticed it's mammon with a capital M? How peculiar. It's as if it's a name. It is a name. It's a name of a spirit. It's a real personal thing. The spirit of greed, the spirit of mammon, the spirit to possess, the spirit that leads us to think in such a way that my life isn't complete until I have more, until I make more. The the definition of being successful and meaningful in life is I've got to have a certain amount of stuff. I've got to have a certain lifestyle. That is the spirit of mammon. And Jesus says, you're going to be one or the other. You're either going to love and live for God or you're going to love and live for money. But you can't have a foot in each camp. It doesn't work. Not my idea, it's Jesus' words. Maybe the clearest and most disturbing thing that Jesus said on the whole matter was what he said in Mark ten twenty five, when he said, you know, it's easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty disturbing, isn't it? Now, I realize we probably can write that one off or try to by going, yep, that's a shame for those poor rich people. Good thing I'm middle class. We better take a big step back and look at the whole of the globe and look at the whole of history. Because if you look at humanity today in its totality, just who's alive today, we are the wealthy. And if that's not convincing enough, if you look at the population of the planet throughout history... You think about when Jesus spoke these words, you put yourself into that context, you rest assured there isn't one person under the sound of my voice who would not be in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in Jesus' day. Every single one of us would be in the top 1% of the wealthiest. We're included in the wealthy. We don't get a pass. We should be deeply concerned over the words of Jesus. But when he's far from done, in Matthew 6, 19 and 21, he says, Do not store up for yourselves, everybody, for yourselves, say it together, for yourselves. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Could anything be simpler? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, it's a critical phrase, for yourselves. He's not saying no one can possess anything. But he says, don't be possessive about what you possess. Don't make it all about, this is for me, that what you hold We're going to hold with a different perspective in mind about those things. And he says, as an unbreakable principle, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say sometimes it's a problem that if you've got a lot, that your heart may be set on that. He says, it's an unbreakable principle. Wherever your treasure is stored up, you rest assured your heart will be tied to that because you can't get around that. Our hearts are tied to our treasure. Now, part of that teaching, he says, you can lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, and you need to be doing that. You need to be thinking that through. You need to be living a life so that you are constantly making deposits in a bank account that you're going to enjoy for all of eternity. And your heart is going to be tied more and more to God's kingdom and what he's up to if you do that. But if you're laying up more and more for yourself here on earth, guess what? Your heart's going to be tied to that. Luke 12:33 we want this to be to an individual but jesus says this to all of his followers sell your possessions and give to the poor luke 6:30 again to all of his followers not to an individual he says give to everyone who asks of you ouch give to everyone who asks of you and if anyone takes what belongs to you don't demand it back is anybody uncomfortable besides me yet holy smokes this is not the Jesus I got in Sunday school growing up. Did you? I mean, is this the Jesus that you were taught? We, we dodged these verses like the plague. I mean, there, surely there's got to be an out on this, doesn't there? If someone asks from you, don't deny them. Luke 6, 20 and 24. Yeah, I've got extra. I've got more than what's in your outline. I just gave you a small smattering. Luke 6... Jesus looked at his followers and said, You people who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God belongs to you. But how terrible it will be for you who are rich because you already have had your easy life. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But people who are trying to get rich fall into temptation. They're trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be satisfied with what you have. Paul went so far as to say in his letter to the Corinthians, if you have a Christian brother or sister who's greedy, don't you dare even break bread with them. This is a version of Christianity that's so far removed from American Christianity, we can barely recognize it. Wouldn't you agree? If somebody's greedy, that's such an egregious sin. It's so out of step with the character of God and the Christianity that Jesus came to define. That Paul said, you don't even need to associate with that because for one, it's terribly contagious. Don't even eat with somebody who's a greedy brother or sister. We better take a big step back and re-examine what it is our faith is built around. Now, be very clear on this. You may need to write this thought down. It's not in your outline, but if you're at the point of going, whoa, where do I get off this bus? Let me remind you of this. God isn't out to make us poor. He is seeking to make us generous. Big difference. Poverty is not the goal. God's not out to see if he can break you in any financial sense. He's not trying to make you poor. He's trying to make us compassionate and generous. And they are not the same. The second truth is this. Okay, before I read the second truth, everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. See, I gave you the hard stuff on the front end. Now's the good news. Everybody endured the hard You ready for a little good news? Say, "Uh Uh uh-huh. All right, let's go. The good news begins with this. God intends that we should always have adequate provisions and that we should enjoy them. Aren't you glad? God's not trying to make you broke. God loves for you to be taken care of. He's committed to you being taken care of. He wants you to enjoy that. Forced poverty is evil in all its forms. And people are going to tend to run to one of two extremes. Either leave me alone and let me just make all I can and hold on to all that I can and don't you say anything about it. And trust me, there are plenty of churches that not only will let you do that, they will preach that. God wants everybody to be healthy and wealthy. And right now, you could go home and turn it and watch it on multiple channels simultaneously, pastors who are telling you that. Yes, indeed. And on the other end of that is a much smaller group of people who are so legalistic that they think that if you love Jesus, you've got to be dirt poor. And that if you've got money, you can't be right with God. Because Jesus was poor and all of his true followers are poor. Forced poverty is evil. It is not from God. It is not the teachings of Jesus. That's asceticism, not Christianity. Asceticism is about a life of rigidity. And it's always discipline. And it's always sacrifice. And the Christian life is a terrible burden to bear. That's not what Jesus taught. And that's certainly not a life of simplicity. What the Bible teaches is that creation is good and to be enjoyed. You see, what asceticism doesn't allow for is the land flowing with milk and honey. And, oh, trust me. That name it and claim it camp, they're going to preach the land flowing with milk and honey all the time. We've got to hold all the teachings of Scripture in balance together. What am I talking about when I say the land flowing with milk and honey? It's the Old Testament promise of God to His people. I want to give you a land. I'm going to give you a land. It's going to be a land that you didn't purchase. And it's going to be a land filled with cities that you didn't build and houses that you didn't pay for and vineyards that you didn't plant. And you're just going to walk in and possess what I want to give to you. Live in houses that you didn't build or pay for. Eat the crops that you didn't even plant that year. Enjoy all of that. Can you say abundant provision? That clearly is. You see, asceticism doesn't allow for the seasons of abundance that God loves to lavish on us. But at the same time, we can't just so embrace only the land flowing with milk and honey to the point that we don't embrace the teachings of Jesus that we've got to learn to be a generous people who are always concerned about the needs of the poor and who are willing to sacrifice to care for them. It's a balance. But In that, be very clear that God wants you to enjoy the world and his provision for you in the world. So simplicity rejoices in that. And simplicity, here's the balance. Simplicity is content with much or with little. And doesn't find happiness just with one or the other. We realize, I can be so happy whether I've got a lot of money in the bank or a little money in the bank. Whether I've got a big house, little house, or just a house with wheels. And you live long enough, you learn that. You, you, I mean, part of the joy of God letting us... Ride this roller coaster of abundance and not having so much. As we discover my happiness had nothing to do with how much money I had. Paul summed this up so well in Philippians 4. When he said, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. My God will meet your every need out of his riches. And you see, this principle, this truth then sets us free to just fully enjoy God's provision. Because we realize God's always going to take care of us, and sometimes He's going to give us more than we need, and sometimes He's going to give us just exactly what we need with nothing to spare. And in that, we don't have to stress over either one. Because it's God's deal to make sure that His kids are taken care of. And so then we're just free to enjoy that without stressing over it. But be aware, as we seek to embrace this kind of lifestyle, this principle, this discipline is the one that is open to the most corruption. Because it's so visible, it's easy to turn it into this rigid set of ideas of these are the things you've got to do if you really love Jesus. And if you don't make all these sacrifices the same way that I did, then you don't love Jesus. That's law and that's death. There's no joy in that. The truth of the matter is most, most Christians never wrestle with what we're talking about today. Because it's such an affront to our affluent lifestyle, isn't it? We don't want to have to wrestle with this. Most people don't. And those that do, a large percentage of them will land on the side of legalism. We want to wrestle with this, but we want to absolutely refuse to buy into legalism. We want to live with the tension of loving and embracing all that God provides for us, but never letting our possessions possess us. Now here's where we really begin to get to the good stuff. Jesus taught in this vein, Jesus is the one who summed up what a life of simplicity looks like. Jesus taught that we can live a life that is free from worry. Maybe his clearest teaching on this was in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew 6... Where he, he used the simple analogy of the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. And he said, do you realize how they live? That you know They're the creations of God. And the birds, they never worry about what they're going to eat. No bird has ever died from stress. Never had a stress-induced heart attack ever. They, they don't. They just don't stress. Zebras don't stress. Birds don't stress. Elephants don't stress. Human beings are the only creatures of God that get stressed. The animals innately recognize that they're going to be cared for. That they're going to have a nest to sleep in. A den to run to. That they're going to have food to eat. And God alone provides those things. And they rest in those things. Jesus made that point throughout Matthew 6. And he says, if God so abundantly provides for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, how much more will he take care of you who are his children? He says, those flowers are going to be gone tomorrow. Those birds aren't going to live long at all. But you're his children. How much more will he care for you? He's getting us. He's homing in on the life of simplicity. That it's really all about trust. It's about learning that we can trust God to provide for us. And then that brings us to the conclusion of what he said in that chapter, which is the third and the central truth here, that the point of simplicity is that we are to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and then everything else can assume its proper order. Jesus concluded what he was saying about the birds of the air and the flowers and how God clothes and feeds them and how much more he's committed to doing those things for us. And he says, so then seek first, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. Somebody say Amen. amen. Yes. We started out by talking about a life of simplicity, having a divine center in your life. Here's that center. It's simple because it's living your entire life for one thing. To please God. It's seeking first God and His kingdom and the righteousness that comes from that. And then just letting everything else fall in place. It's deciding, I don't have to live for all these different competing causes and, and drives. I can just live for one thing. I'm just living to please God. I'm living for the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God, by the way? It's the rule of God in the lives of men and women. So everything that advances that first of all everything that advances Jesus being lord and king of my life. Oh, I'm for that. Anything that advances others coming under the the righteous just rule and reign of Jesus. I'm all about that. And so now my de- decisions and my thinking become so much simpler. Everything revolves around that. It's not about me. It's not about. But you know, if I'm a good parent, my kids have got to have this. And they've got to be in this kind of school. And I've got to make sure they don't just go to a state institution. I mean, good grief. I've, just, I've got to figure this out. How am I going to send my kid to any school that they want to go to? I've got to figure out how to make this money because I don't want my child to have to just go to Faulkner. How terrible would that be? I mean, what an awful life. What if my kids had to work for a year before they go to school? I mean, I'm just so stressed out thinking about this stuff. How am I going to provide all this? How about you don't worry about it? How about you decide that there's one thing that matters? And that is seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and knowing that your children belong to the kingdom of God. And let God provide for where they're going to go to school or where they're going to work or who they're going to marry. And we're just going to seek him and his kingdom and we're going to let everything else fall into its proper place. I'll vote for option B. Seeking first the kingdom. We can do that. We can live that life, but everything hinges on keeping this first. The desire to get out of the rat race can't be first place. The desire for simplicity can't be first place. Even that can become idolatry. The desire to redistribute wealth, that can't be first place. That's called socialism, and Bernie can have it. That's not what we're after. That's not Christianity. Christianity. Can we be really clear about this? The teachings of Jesus aren't anything close to communism or socialism. And those things are not the answer. In fact, those things are oppressive if you give them their way. Those are absolutely not what we're supposed to be after. Jesus is not after the redistribution of wealth Jesus is the son of God, and the heart of God is that he is a father and a giver. He is a provider, and we are to imitate his heart. We are to reflect his character, and so we need to be generous givers. The, the equal redistribution of wealth is never what the Bible teaches. You want to know what the New Testament teaches? He who doesn't work doesn't eat. If a person's a lazy bum, they ought to suffer the penalty of it. It's a great motivator to not be a lazy bum. The redistribution of wealth will provide for lazy bums. The New Testament does not. The New Testament understands. The writers of the New Testament understood. You don't work, you shouldn't eat. There's a big difference between these concepts. Are we all on the same board there? I'm not preaching Republican or Democratic politics, but we ought to draw some pretty good conclusions out of what the Bible teaches on these subjects. It has nothing to do with abundance or scarcity. It has everything to do with an inward trust in God, us living a life of simplicity. Can I trust God to be my provider? Now, you know, Paul warned that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is. I just think with that, we ought to bear in mind... That when sometimes we want to give ourselves a pass and go, yeah, those people who love money, they get in all kinds of trouble. But, you know, I don't have a lot, so I'm obviously not one of those people. Some of the people who love the money the most are the ones who have it the least. You ever notice that? They don't have a whole lot of it, but they'd give their right arm to have some more of it. And in fact, they'll give a part of a lot of their paychecks to the lottery in hopes that one day they get a lot of it. The love of money is not restricted to those who have a lot of it. And we need to be clear that wealth absolutely does not bring freedom from anxiety. Would you agree with that? I hope that we get this. Wealth will not free you from anxiety. It will only increase your anxiety. I love Soren Kierkegaard's writings. I wish that I'd had space to put this in your outline because it's such a great quote. Kierkegaard said this, Riches and abundance... Come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they become then the object of anxiety. He goes on to say, they secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf who is put to tending the sheep secures them against the wolf. (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it? He says, if you think that wealth and abundance is going to free you from anxiety... Don't think that for a minute because it's going to be a source of greater anxiety. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, spelled that out in Ecclesiastes. He had more than anybody on earth. And he said, the more you gain wealth, the more you have stress. So now let's get to the heart of the matter. I said we're going to sort of paint a picture that's going to gradually unfold. Now the the picture's going to take shape because I'm going to give you three simple statements. That if you want to understand simplicity in a nutshell, these three statements tell you what it's all about. These are the three inner attitudes that not only sum up simplicity, but that will break the grip of anxiety if you'll embrace them. The first is this. All I have, I receive as a gift. All I have, all I have, I receive as a gift. That's hard to get in our heads, isn't it? Because we think that a lot of what we have, we have because we worked hard and we earned it. Or because we were born into a family that was wealthy and they gave it to us, right? Isn't that how most people think? That you have what you have because you worked hard for it. It's an American ideal. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Work hard, you'll have more. Every good thing you have, you have because God gave it to you. That's so counter to what we think. The truth of the matter is, we all live by the grace of God. It's just some people get it and some people don't everybody the biggest atheist and pagan lives by the grace of God you ever think about what God provides that you absolutely can't pay for or produce. I mean there are so many things that we want and that we work hard to possess and we feel like God didn't give me that every good thing we have came from God and all of the most important stuff undeniably came from God. I mean, think about the things we worked so hard for that we think we couldn't live without. I just couldn't live without my car. I love my car. Somebody takes that car away, you can live another 50 years. I've got friends who've never owned a car. They're doing just fine. I'm glad I've got a car, but I could live without it. How, how long are you going to make it without air? About five to seven minutes. When's the last time you were able to produce air? Never. How long are you going to make it without water? When's the last time you manufactured water? You're going to make it about three to five days before you're dead. When's the last time you manufactured sunshine? How long are we going to make it without sunshine? Probably a few weeks before everybody on the planet would be dead. The sun stops doing what the sun does. The whole earth and everybody on it dies in a very, very short span of time. God alone provides air Water, sunshine, the things that are most fundamental to life. And we tend to sort of write that off and go, well, yeah, I mean, there are some things we have to have that we can't provide. But thankfully, they're just there and we can count on. They're there because God holds everything in place by his powerful spoken word. We trust him for the things that we have no control over. Something happens to the atmosphere. We can't fix it. We fret about global warming. We ought to just get over global warming because God has to be in charge of everything. And we can trust Him with that. It's like things we have no control over. Do we have enough water on the planet? Do we have air? Do we have sunshine? What if something happened? I mean, only God can take care of those things. Guess what? He is just as faithful to take care of everything else too. All the other things that I think I've got to fret about. God's committed to providing the things that we need. The things that can buy you groceries and make sure you've got gas in your vehicle and can have heat at your house tonight. God's committed to providing for us. It all is a gift from God. And secondly, what I have is to be cared for by God. God not only provides for what I need, he protects what he provides for. And we can trust him to do that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't lock the door. I still marvel that there are people who never lock their doors. Maybe they've just got a deeper level of faith than I do, but sometimes faith looks a lot like foolishness. It's okay to lock the door. It's probably a really good idea. But we realize our security is not in, in bars and locks. Psalm 127 says this, "...unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain." We lock the door, but we trust in God. God is able to protect what He provides for. We don't have to figure out how we're going to hang on to all of this. God can protect what He's given you. And by the way, God can protect your career, your name, and your reputation as well. He's able to do that. More on that another day. The third part is this. What I have not only came from God and is protected by God... But it's always available to others who need it. This is where it gets tricky. God provided it. And he didn't provide it for me to just stockpile it all for myself in case of a rainy day. Everything that God gives me, everything that God gives you, is to continually be available for others if they're in need. And where it really starts stepping on my toes is the realization that for me to refuse, for me to look around and become acutely aware of needs within the body or needs within the community, and then to just ignore it when it is a legitimate need. I don't mean a need because somebody's making bad decisions or somebody's being lazy or whatever. I mean a legitimate need. And for then, for me to realize I have the resource that could supply that need. I'm aware of a legitimate need. But you know what? I'm just going to let that go because somebody else can take care of them. You know, I might have a rainy day one day. You see, that's a lack of trust in God. What I have is to be available to others. Again, that's not socialism or communism. That's generosity and compassion. Big difference. It's not forced redistribution of wealth. And when we fail to live this way, it's rooted in us failing to trust in the provision of God. It comes from me not knowing if I can trust Jesus to be who he said he is. If Jesus is truly mindful of you every moment of every day, and if he is completely committed to supplying everything you will need in every situation for the rest of your life, why would you ever have to worry about being generous? And what it would cost you to be generous? Do you follow me? Some of us do, and I think some of us maybe are zoned out. Come come back in with me. Consider that issue again. If Jesus shows up with picture ID and says, it's really me talking to you and I'm making you a promise. I'm going to go with you in such a personal way through every experience for the rest of your life. I am making you a personal written guarantee. I will always supply everything you will ever need in every situation you ever encounter. If you had that personal guarantee from Jesus, would you ever have to worry about what it's going to cost you to be generous when somebody that you meet is in need? No, why? Because if your generosity created a need, what guarantee do you have? I've got the written promise of Jesus. He told me to my face, wrote it down and said, you, you can come back and cash this in anytime you need to. Hey, Jesus, you know, I ran into somebody today. They were really in need. And so I helped them out in your name. But I've sure got a real need now. I'm not even sure how I'm going to pay the gas bill or buy groceries this week. Could you help me out? You think Jesus is going to go, well, you dumb bunny, what were you thinking? He's going to abundantly supply. So can we trust Jesus to be who he said he is? Do you see that more clearly now what we're talking about? A life of simplicity. It's all a gift from God. He can take care of it. And now I can be generous with others as a result of it. Now, having said that, what I'm going to conclude with, I'm going to do these very quickly. But I'm going to give you, as I've tried to do with each discipline, I'm going to just read off ten practical ways to live out a life of simplicity. The reason I've given you a bunch is because simplicity is a broad concept. For the most legalistic list makers in the room or listening online, these are not ten commandments. None of these are commandments. These are ten suggestions. These are ten applications. These are just ten ways any of which you could begin to work toward building these into your life. If you make these commandments... You're not really following Jesus in doing that. Jesus didn't come to create law. He came to teach us to live a life of love. And so these are reflective of a heart that loves God and loves others. So here we go. Ten things. Just examples of living out a life of simplicity. Number one, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. When you think about buying a car, a house, clothes. Are you thinking in terms of what, what brand name? You know, What little animal is going to be on your pot right here? To say, yeah, I spent $65 for this pullover shirt instead of 12 or 15 What name's going to be written here in my collar that lets me know that I've really got a nice shirt? Or am I just going to buy something that's practical? So many times the only difference is the little critter that's right here or the name that's in the collar. Am I going to think practically about the vehicle that I drive? Am I going to spend an extra ten or $20,000 so I've got a particular logo on the middle of my trunk or on the middle of my hood? How much house do I have to take, do I need to have to really take care of my family? Am I going to think practically about buying things for their usefulness rather than their status and determine, I'm going to impress people with my life instead of with my cars and my toys and my home. Number two, reject anything that produces addiction within you because simplicity is freedom, not slavery. And that can come in any number of of different ways. I mean, an addiction can be to alcohol or to drugs or to smoking, but it can be to chocolate or to caffeine or to gambling. If, if it causes addiction, we want to figure out how to get free from those things in a life of simplicity. Number three, develop a habit of giving things away. This doesn't mean have more yard sales. Giving things away. Now, I'll just throw this out. Somebody taught me this a few years ago, and it's actually kind of fun to do. You may want to go home and try this out. Just arbitrarily pick a number, 50 or 100, I would suggest as a starting point. Go home this week and just determine, I'm going to go find 50 things or 100 things in my house I'm going to give away. You'll be amazed how easy it is. And if we'll practice this discipline on a regular basis, it does a couple of things. One, it helps us to learn to stop holding on tightly to everything that we possess and learn the joy of giving. I mean, you can't learn this short of doing it. You have to do it for it to become a heart reality. So just, I mean, it'll blow you away. You start doing it, you set out to do 50, and you'll you'll find out you've collected 150 things to give away without even trying hard. When you start looking at clothes and books and things in your kitchen and around your house, go go give them away. Even if it's to somebody or even if it's just to goodwill, deaccumulate. Number four, refuse the lure to always buy the latest and greatest gadgets. That in itself can almost be an addiction, but gadgets are made to break down, so you have to buy more. And a lot of times they complicate life more than they simplify it, so don't always feel like you've got to have the latest, whatever the newest is. Time-saving devices seldom actually save time, and all the promises of it'll pay for itself in a year almost never actually work out. Number five, this one I love. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. If you love the beach, you don't have to own a piece of it to enjoy it, and I do. I I love the beach, and I plan to never own any of it. I love the fact we already own a bunch of it. All of us do. There's all these public beaches that we get to go and enjoy. They're our beaches. And the cool thing about it is you never have to clean it up. You never have to pay taxes on it. You just get to go and enjoy it. I mean, I'd love, I'd, I'd just go as often as I can, Half for years. I love just going down to the, even the beach at the bay. I feel like that park's just mine. It's ours. But I never have to mow the grass. I never have to, you know, go smooth out the sand when the storms have made a mess of it. Enjoy the things that are yours without having to actually own it. Because the idea that possession and ownership create greater joy, it's an illusion. It's a lie. It's not true. So enjoy parks, enjoy beaches, enjoy walking trails, enjoy libraries and museums and all the things that are yours that you don't have to own to enjoy them. Number six, develop a deeper appreciation for nature. Get outside. Take walks. Listen to the birds, smell the flowers. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and we should enjoy it. Number seven, minimize debt and avoid buy now, pay later schemes. Debt just in general tends to put us in bondage. It, it, it doesn't mean that all debt's a sin. I've heard people preach that. It's garbage. That's not what the Bible says. But more and more debt creates more and more bondage. So we want to work toward minimizing that. Number eight, obey Jesus' teaching about plain and honest speech. Jesus said in Matthew 5.37, just a simple yes I will or no I won't. Because anything beyond this is from the evil one. That's a strong statement. Plain and simple speech. Just say the real thing. Number nine, reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. I'm not saying you need to go do in-depth research on every label before you buy anything. But when you're aware that this brand or this thing is constantly... Produced so cheaply because they use basically, essentially, modern slave labor in third world countries. We don't, if we're going to embrace a life of simplicity, a part of that is we don't want to breed oppression in others. We want them to be able to experience the justice of the kingdom. And number ten. Shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God because this is what simplicity is all about. It is simply seeking first Jesus and his kingdom. So anything that sidetracks me from that, I want to dodge. I conclude with one illustration. I, I don't know what you're thinking at this point. Every time I dive back in and seek to, to re embrace and examine this in my life, it's tough. I feel like, man, I struggle to measure up in so many different ways. And I, I feel like asking the question, is it really attainable? Does anybody really live this way? And the answer is yes. There are people who, who model this so very well. And when I think about this discipline, one person comes so clearly to mind more than anybody else. He was a very good friend who is no longer with us here now because he's in heaven. Is our dear friend Nels. How many people just immediately go, Nails? <laughs> If you haven't been here for more than two years, because Nels passed about 21 months ago, if you've been here more than two years, you'll remember Nels. He oftentimes was camped right here on the front row. He was the little man in his early 70s who had the heart of about a 21-year-old and who just would get so full of the Holy Ghost he couldn't stand still. He'd get so excited in worship. But Nels embodied this as well as anybody that I know. Now, if you looked at Nels' life, And if you didn't understand the realities that I've talked about today, his life wouldn't make sense because he didn't have the things that most of us think we've got to have in order to be happy. Some of you who knew Nels may not have known him well. Let me just tell you a couple of things about him that you might not have known. Nels had the opportunity in the course of his life to visit more countries than just about anybody that I've ever known. I think I've known maybe two people in my life who've been to more countries than than he's been in. It wasn't because he was wealthy. In fact, I don't think he ever had much money at one time in his life because he always so freely gave it away. And yet, God, he was so connected to what God was doing in the kingdom that the Lord took him all over the world to all these different countries just ministering in such a simple way. He was a school teacher for heaven's sake. It's not like he had some big source of income. He lived in what by American standards was a very small house in Foley. He loved that house, not in a possessive way. He just saw it as such an incredible gift from God. And Nels had this way of he at first I thought it was weird. I, I mean, I'll tell you, overall, when I first met Nels, I thought he was cuckoo for cocoa puffs. I mean, I I was like, what is up with this guy? I mean, could anybody be for real and be like this? And he was. And the things that God gave him, he was so appreciative of. He loved to name them his house. If you knew Nels. His house was Shiloh. He loved Shiloh. Just very small house in Foley. And yet he was so generous with that house. He was forever taking people in. And if you went to Nell's house, it's like, that's a house built for one or for two. And yet he was always bringing people in. He had a real heart for internationals. And he created a space for them. And he cooked for them and let them stay for weeks at a time as they were trying to find housing and stuff. And and he drove a little black car <laughs> That was funnier than, than the way he was about the house because, he, again, he loved to name the things that God gave him because they were real personal gifts for him. And he drove a very modest little black car, which he lovingly gave the name of Thunder. I'm like, when I heard about Thunder, I'm like, man, that must be a powerful car. And then you see his little car and it's like... Beetle bug maybe, but thunder. But he, he loved thunder because it was God's gift to him. And he used thunder to shuttle these international students all over the place, helping them out. First time I ever saw Nell's yard, it I'm like, man, somebody needs to get this under control because it's just all these flowering plants everywhere. It's like there's no room for grass for all the flowering plants. But then when Nell's was in our small group, I came to realize why he just had flowers I don't just mean in flower beds. It's just like a jungle of flowers almost. But he just loved what God calls to grow. And he wasn't like a gardener by any stretch. And yet he could just make things grow that we can't ever make grow. And I don't think there was... I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I don't think there was one time Nels ever came to small group that he didn't come in bringing fresh flowers for us. He just enjoyed the simple things of life. And whatever he had... He was always willing to share. He was always looking for the next person in need, always reaching out to another international student, checking in, who's coming, who needs to get somewhere, who needs a place to stay, who's short of meal money for this week, who needs help getting their deposit paid so they can get in their apartment, just looking for how he can serve others. I'm not saying that because we all need to stand and applaud Nels. I'm just telling you, he lived a simple life, And I can't think of anybody who had more joy in just living that simple lifestyle. Very small house. Very simple car. Never had a lot of money in the bank. And yet, God let him take in more of the world than hardly anybody I've ever known. Had more friends in more countries than anybody I know. And I truly can say, without any exception, I've thought about this this week. I can't imagine anyone I've ever met who had anywhere near the reward awaiting him as what Nels did when he went home. Because he lived his life as just a life of simplicity all about the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, he was. I I marveled at that. I mean, the guy would spend five and six hours a day or a night in in prayer. Just an amazing, amazing guy. But his life was built around what matters the most. I don't say that to make us feel small, but to say a little bit at a time. He he didn't get there overnight, and neither will any of us. It's a willingness to embrace God. I want my life to be more centered on the kingdom, less centered on me and my stuff and my kingdom. And so I conclude just with that simple question for you. What would be the beginning point for you to embrace the discipline of simplicity? Or maybe ask it a different way. Of the things that we've talked about in a lifestyle of simplicity, Where does the world seem to have the biggest hold? Or where do your possessions or lifestyle seem to have the biggest hold on you that needs to be broken? It's only the power of God that's going to ultimately do that. But we have to bring discipline to bear. We have to focus on making a change. Would you join me as we, both in the room and those of you watching online, as we turn to the Lord together in prayer? God, we acknowledge that for most, probably for all of us, There is a lot of ground that we need to make up. We've been so affected by the culture, and quite honestly, most of us just really enjoy our stuff. We enjoy comfort, and if we have the choice, we'd rather have more comfort and financial security than what we have now. And yet we read the truth of your word, and we know that what we need is to trust you more, and to center our lives more completely on you and your kingdom and your kingdom work. Please help us. Please grant gifts of conviction and repentance. And by the voice of your spirit, would you speak now and put your finger on specific areas and issues in our lives where we need to begin right now to make change? Would you ask God for that right now? Would you ask him to show you at least one specific area where something needs to be broken, it needs to be changed, it needs to be given up. But some specific way that you need to apply what we've talked about today, would you ask him to show you that right now? And if you're willing, would you just say your yes to that? Would you say, God, with the power that you give me, I commit to change that. I'm asking for your help, but I want to make those changes. I want to make... You and your kingdom, the center of my life. God, we trust you for that. We trust you to supply the power that we need to live different lives. Forgive us for ways that we've been greedy or self-centered and help us today to think first about you and about those that you love. We welcome your work in our lives and we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.